the friend of little children. Jesus' friends were arguing. Who was the most important helper in God's kingdom, they wanted to know. I am, James said. No, you're not, said Peter. I am. Nonsense, Matthew said. I'm the cleverest. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, no, I am. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. This silliness went on and on like that for some time. You see, Jesus' friends had started thinking they had to do something to make themselves special to Jesus, that if they were the cleverest or the nicest or something, Jesus would like them best. But they had forgotten something, something God had been teaching his people all through the years, that no matter how clever you are, or how good you are, or how rich you are, or how nice you are, or how important you are, none of it makes any difference. Because God's love is a gift. And as anyone will tell you, the whole thing about a gift is it's free. All you have to do is reach out your hands and take it. So while Jesus' friends were arguing, some people who knew all about getting gifts, in fact, you might say they were gift experts, had come to see Jesus. Who were they? <laughs> they were little children. Jesus' helpers tried to send them away. Uh, Jesus doesn't have time for you, they said. He's too tired. But they were wrong. Jesus always had time for children. Don't ever send them away, Jesus said. Bring the little ones to me. Now, if you had been there, what do you think? Would you have had to line up quietly to see Jesus? Do you think Jesus would have asked you how good you'd been before he'd give you a hug? Would you have had to be on your best behaviour and get dressed up and not speak until you're spoken to? Or... Would you have done just what these children did? Run straight up to Jesus and let him pick you up in his arms and swing you and kiss you and hug you and then sit you on his lap and listen to your stories and your chats. You see, children loved Jesus and they knew they didn't need to do anything special for Jesus to love them. All they needed to do was to run into his arms and so that's just what they did. Well, after all the laughing and games, Jesus turned to his helpers and said, No matter how big you grow, never grow up so much that you lose your child's heart, full of trust in God. Be like these children. They are the most important in my kingdom. Resumes. That's exactly what the disciples were trying to define their own resume for Jesus. You see, resumes, they're just a simple document that we see these days, and sometimes they pile up on us if we're in that place of hiring. The word resume, it's a French word uh, that means to summarize. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci was actually accredited uh, for the first resume. He sent a letter to one of his patrons describing how amazing he was, uh, not just in his paintings, but also his inventions. Uh, and 
then later on in the 1900s resumes, they, they evolved a bit. Uh, they became more of a list of hobbies, of things that people like to do. Uh, but then resumes came in their heyday in the 1950s where to get a job, specifically a, 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 an office job, you, you had a resume that you actually took to a printer and had it printed. Those are a few years ago. Uh, then in 2003, LinkedIn was launched, and everybody could put their resume online, and hundreds of thousands did. It's a list of skills, so just a list of skills. But if you've had to come up with a resume yourself in the, in the recent days, you find it's maybe a little overwhelming trying to figure out what's a, what's a real list and, and what's an embellished accomplishment. Well, uh, the hiring platform indeed has an entire list of, of phrases that people have used to embellish their resume and then the exact meaning of what that phrase was. Here's a few of my favorites. I seek a job that will draw upon my strong communication and organizational skills. The real meaning was, I talk too much and I like to tell other people what to do. I take pride in my work, which actually meant I usually blame others for my mistakes. I am adaptable, which means I've changed jobs a lot. I'm on the go. I'm rarely at my desk. I am highly motivated to succeed, which really meant the minute I find a better job, I'm out of here. And then finally, thank you for your time and consideration, which usually means please don't throw my resume away. If you were to put together a Christian resume, what would it look like? What would your Christian resume look like? What would it say in the experiences? Missions trip to Honduras, volunteers at a homeless shelter, does a random act of kindness once a week. Maybe your, your qualifications. Twelfth generation believer, trusted Christ at 10, baptized at 12, invited my neighbor Roger over to watch Billy Graham at 14. Maybe references. Pastor Jackson from First Baptist of Wichita, Pastor Johnson from First Baptist Waynesboro, Pastor Jones from First Baptist Winchester. Well, at least there's consistency there. What about character traits? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness. Those sound pretty familiar. So what would you add to your resume to get the edge in the kingdom? That's what the disciples were asking. What would you add to your resume? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this day and for your word and for how it gives us such a vivid picture of who you are, who you've created us to be. And I pray, Father, as we dig into your word this morning, that you would use it uh, to make us in the image of Christ. We thank you, Father. We thank you for that privilege and opportunity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text is in Matthew 18. And we'll start uh, in verse 1. 
At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself, and he set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It starts off at that time. What has happened up to this time? In fact, a lot has happened uh, in the disciples' lives and the life of Jesus. And we're just going to rewind just one chapter, just one chapter back to chapter 17, just to get a feel for what's going on uh, as the disciples are thinking through who's the greatest in the kingdom. Well, at the beginning of chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on this high mountain. He's transfigured before them. He becomes as bright as white as lightning. And then Moses and Elijah join him. They're representing the law and the prophets. And Luke 9 tells us that they're actually discussing Jesus' departure from this world. Can you imagine the talk between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? They're talking about his is leaving this earth, how that's going to look, what it's going to be like. And these three disciples are witnessing this whole thing. Now, as usual, Peter decides to say something silly. I, I, I can build you all tabernacles. We can build you a structure for, for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And about the time he's at the end of his phrasing of those sentences, this white cloud descends upon them, this bright white cloud, a fog so lit up that they can't even see each other, and they hear the voice of God say, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Well, Peter, James, and John literally fall down on their faces, terrified. Jesus picks them up off of the ground, and as they're heading down the mountain, he tells them, don't tell anybody about this until I have risen from the dead. They go right into Jesus healing this little boy who's been possessed by a demon, a demon that the disciples couldn't drive out. In fact, he tells the disciples, if, if, your, if your faith was larger, larger than a mustard seed, then you could have driven out, out this demon. In fact, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move literal mountains. And then on the tail end of the story, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men and be killed. And in three days, I'll rise again. It's just an added on phrase at the end of that story. Well, then they encounter some tax collectors who are collecting the taxes for the, for the temple. And this is an opportunity that Jesus uses with Peter to declare his own sonship one more time. And he asks Peter, he says, who do the kings of the earth collect taxes from? Do they collect from their sons or from strangers? And Peter says, well, they collect from strangers. Jesus says, well, I, I'm the son of God. I don't have to pay this tax, but I'm going to for the sake of of these tax collectors and for, for the sake of the people around us, but I don't have to because I'm the Son of God. He says, Peter, just to prove this to you, I want you to go fishing, which must have sounded strange at the time. Why am I going fishing now? I want you to go fishing. I want you to use a single hook, not a net. Go catch a fish. 
Peter does what he's told, and I'm really glad for him. He does what he's told, comes back, and sure enough, the fish that he caught, it had swallowed a shekel, just enough to pay both of their taxes. That brings us to chapter 18. So the disciples, they're coming to Jesus. They're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Can you, can you hear it? Well, Jesus said, your faith was too small to cast out a demon. Well, I was the first to respond to Jesus' call. Well, my family's been following Jesus since the moment we met him. My mother-in-law, she was healed by Jesus. Well, Jesus does love me best. I walked on water for a little while. Well, I was picked to see him glow in the dark with Moses and Elijah. I wasn't supposed to say that, was I? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? The disciples wanted to know. They wanted to know what their resumes were going to have to look like to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now picture this. They're speaking to Jesus, and they're asking him who the greatest in the kingdom is. Jesus could have ended the conversation right then and there by saying, I am. I am the king, the preeminent being. I am the greatest in the kingdom. And he would have been right. And verses from the Old Testament would have washed over all of the disciples. And they would have remembered. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Prince. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Then Daniel said, I kept looking in the night vision and behold the clouds of heaven. One like the Son of Man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language would serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with robes dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress with the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. But the disciples, they don't get it. They don't get it. So there must have been some kids not too far away 
because Jesus calls one of them over to them. Now, there are thousands, literally, you can Google it, thousands of paintings of Jesus with children. Why? I have no idea. But we are accustomed to seeing these paintings just about everywhere, gift shops, Christian bookstores, truck stops even. Perhaps there's something comforting to us about seeing Jesus with children, or maybe we just love those pictures, but they are everywhere. But at the same time, even as we see these pictures, they paint a picture very unlike what children would have experienced in those ancient days. In those ancient days, and really up until recent history, children had no particular economic or social value or class. That doesn't mean that their parents and their grandparents didn't love them, that they certainly did. But for most of children, they, they had no, no purpose in the world they lived in. They had no standing. They had no value. They had no power. And so this child that Jesus calls over beside him, he represents the vulnerability, the, the utter need, the dependence that children had for everything. So this little child standing there beside Jesus, I'm sure he's wondering why he's been called over, but he is. And Jesus says, truly, he says this to his disciples, truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that phrase, are converted, Matthew uses the, the Greek word strepho, which it means literally to turn around, just to, to, to turn around. He uses it a number of times uh, in his gospel. Uh, in Matthew 5, he, he says, uh, you've heard that it's said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, uh, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other one. It's the same word, strepho. And then when Jesus heals the woman who has the, the hemorrhaging, uh, he, he turns to her. In Matthew 9, uh, 22, it says, Jesus turned to her and saw, and saw her and said, Take heart, daughter. Turning. There's this turning. Truly I say to you, unless you are turning around, leave what you're doing in life and become like this child, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't miss this picture. This child... This child is playing with his friends in the dirt over here. He hears the voice of Jesus. And he leaves what he's doing. He turns and he goes to Jesus. Jesus wanted the disciples to see what this little child did. And it's just that simple. Entering into the kingdom is as simple as a child hearing Jesus' voice voice, turning to him and going. Jesus gives us a free gift when we hear his voice and turn to him and go to him. As we go to him and receive that gift of eternal life, it's ours. It's just that simple. It's as simple as that child turning and responding. Then Jesus is going to answer the disciples' real question about their resumes. Who's this greatest in the kingdom? He says, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
It's not military power. It's not physical might or athletic ability. It's not beauty or wealth or social standing or fame. It's humility, humbleness. Jesus is saying to his disciples right here, this child reflects the humble qualities that are mine. Because not only am I the greatest in the kingdom, at the same time, I'm also the humbleness because I am the Son of God. Those humble qualities so quickly fade away as kids turn into adults. Those humble qualities lead to being the greatest in the kingdom. Those humble qualities shape us into the image of Christ for the sake of others. So this morning I want to look at some of those humble qualities of children. Humble qualities of children. Children love easily and they communicate it simply. They love easily, they communicate it simply. Now, a number of you know that three of our granddaughters uh, are with us for 10 days. Parenting is for young people and I've figured that out quickly. Uh, but we have enjoyed our time. It's been a fantastic time. Uh, but we, we've learned that how quickly children will tell you they love you. They can be your greatest cheerleader, your biggest encourager. They're willing to help make brownies and crafts. They love to draw you pictures and make cards for you. They love to play and to enjoy time with you. They love to hold your hand. They love to sit on you while you read stories to them. And they so quickly tell you how much they love you. Children love easily. They communicate it simply. Children also appreciate a great story. Our kids and now our grandkids, they love to hear stories of when I was a kid or when their parents were kids. Uh, they want to learn about us through our history. They want to learn about our likes and our dislikes, our loves, our pains, our triumphs, our despairs. They love to hear those stories. Children also enjoy routine. Uh, they thrive in consistency. You know, consistent routines and activities, they help them figure things out, uh, like when snack is going to be, when playtime is going to be, when I should be taking a nap, when that person that I love is coming home. Uh, it provides this sense of security and, and emotional stability. It helps them learn uh, to trust those caring adults. Uh, it also helps them to feel that they're free to do their work within that realm, the work of learning and playing and exploring. The next is that children understand uh, that they need help, that they're dependent. I can't reach that. Can you help me? Can you help me put this toy back together? Can you push me on the swing? Can you pick me up? My legs are tired. I can't tie my shoe. Can you help me tie my shoe? But then every once in a while, that independent streak comes out, and the word you hear is, I can do it myself, which is usually followed by crying and frustration for me. 
So how do we regain or reinvigorate some of these humble childlike qualities for the purpose of being formed in Christ's image for the sake of others? How do we regain some of these things? Well, let's go back through them. So kids love simply. They communicate it easily. Well, when we love someone, it's, it's natural for us to want to be with them, to experience a life alongside them. And if we're to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, then we ought to want to experience life in His presence. Prayer is primarily relational, not functional. It's primarily relational, not functional. Too often we think of prayer as something we do, like a function, to get God to produce a certain result in our lives or in the lives of the people that we know. And we're super interested, super interested in knowing the best techniques and systems to get God to respond. All you have to do is Google top 100 prayer books. And I did that. I'm not going to read them all to you, but I am going to read a few of the, the titles that I thought were interesting. A hundred prayers for life's storms. It is a stormy life they are leading. The prayer saturated life. The prayer map for men. The prayer map for women. The prayer map for boys. The prayer map for girls. Who knew there were so many maps on prayer? The prayer of love. The prayer of Jabez. Handle life with prayer. And this is my ultimate favorite. Pray zing. 101 creative prayer experiences. 101 of them, just in case. Now, I'm sure these authors, all the authors of these books, have enjoyed amazing times of prayer, and they've wanted to, to allow us to, to get a, a peek inside of their lives of prayer. But too often, we just think that we can manipulate and change our lives without entering into some deep, transformative relationship with God, that if we just say the right things, do the right things, that, that God will respond the way we want Him to. We so often forget that God already knows what we need. He already cares more deeply for us than we'll ever understand. And He really wants to have everything turn out for the good for those who love Him. But we forget those things. Paul gives the Philippians a brief model of prayer in, in chapter 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That's how he starts off his prayer. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice. Be gentle. God is near. You don't have to be anxious. Take everything, everything to God in prayer, your thanks, your needs, your request, and God will give you a peace, a shalom that you can't even comprehend. And in everything, he will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. Well, children appreciate a great story. Reading the scriptures is transformative, not just informative. This informational world that we live in allows us to look at just one verse, one paragraph at a time. And we don't have to look at anything around us, just those. That tool you have in your pocket or your purse 
is a powerful tool that allows you to just whittle down Scripture to just a few phrases. And when was the last time that you sat down and read your Bible with no agenda? Actually, no, your agenda was just to allow God to meet you in His Word. How often do we read just a verse, maybe a paragraph, maybe a whole chapter? I'm currently reading this historical novel of World War II, and, and my goal is to read one sentence, maybe one paragraph a day. And in six years, I'll be done that book. I won't remember what happened at the beginning, but I'll be finished. When Karen and I were dating, uh, we went to different schools, different cities, and we wrote letters to each other. Now, I know many of you are going, a letter? What is that? That's when people used to write on paper and fold it up, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it that now cost $100, and then it gets hand-delivered, still does, hand-delivered to the mailbox of that person you sent it to. Well, I would receive one of her letters, and you know, I would open it up, and I would read just a line and go, that's enough, I'll read the rest of that thing tomorrow. Maybe I'll read a verse next week, too, or or a paragraph next week, too. No, that's not what happened. I would open that letter, I would devour that letter, and then I would read through it again to make sure I didn't miss anything. You see, this is a love letter. This is about the person who loves you more than you'll ever know. And how much they love you. Here's my challenge for you. In this week, set aside 15-20 minutes. Take the the book of Mark, the the Gospel of Mark. It's a short book. You can read it in 15-20 minutes. Sit down, no agendas, turn everything off, and just read through, read through the book, and allow the Lord to meet you there. Children enjoy routine. They thrive in consistency. Uh, Liturgies are daily rhythms of life. They're not just a formal worship service. Now, the word liturgy has gotten a bad rap over these last number of years. So often we just think of it as a highbrow, very structured worship service. But the word from the Greek actually means the work of the people. The work of the people. It is is a rhythm of life. It is a a, a thing that we do often to direct ourselves. Now, the broken world that we live in has tons of liturgies, tons of things that reinforce and extend uh, a power uh, on you every day. Every day, people are scrolling, and it's reinforced every day. Every day, people look at their emails. 10, 15, 20 times a half an hour because somebody might need something. And it's reinforced. And then the destructive world around us is reinforcing these these liturgies all the time. The media, the entertainment world, advertising. They all have structures that move an agenda forward. And they're pushing us every day 
to be more like whatever they want us to be. So my question is, what are the daily rhythms that shape us into the image of Christ? What are those daily rhythms, the things that we often do? Now, we've talked about prayer and scripture reading, but here, here are a couple more to consider. One is worship. You know, whether that's just singing a few songs in your car on your ride home from work, or maybe it's a little more structured where you are going on a hike for the very purpose of praising the creator of the creation that you're walking through. Worship. Another is meditating on scripture. It's just taking a few verses and rolling them around in your thoughts over and over again, literally squeezing out every piece of information and feeling of that piece of scripture. How many of us know how to worry? If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. Just take the worry out and shove some scripture in there. That's meditation. That's meditating on scripture. Now, you, you can grab a bookmark on your way out here, and that is scripture memory, a way of getting the word in us. There's also scripture study. There's also fasting, silence, and solitude. These are just rhythms that we can put into our normal, everyday lives, not for just the sake of doing them, but for the sake of being shaped into the person of Jesus. Children understand that they need help. They're dependent. Dependence on God as a believer is essential. It's not optional. It's essential. It's essential, not optional. Christ followers depend on God for everything. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him. He'll make your path straight. We depend on Him for our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not even that of yourselves. It was a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that you cannot boast. And for wisdom, James 1 says, But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And finally, for our every need. Psalm 23, uh, 1 and 2, the, I, I like the way the message renders this. It says, God is my shepherd. I don't need a thing. God is my shepherd. I don't need a thing. We live in a world of rugged individuals that don't need help. They don't need to depend on anyone for anybody. So learning to depend on God can be difficult at best. But it is a way that we're being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. Jesus said in John 5, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not speak on my own, but for the will of him who sent me. Jesus emptied himself of his godliness so that he could be fully dependent on God the Father not for his own will, not for his own good, but for ours, to give us a picture of, of what it looks like to be fully dependent on God Almighty. Psalm 121 starts off, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made the heavens 
and the earth. So ask yourself, how are you becoming more dependent on God? Who are you trusting in? Yourself? The world? The system? God? So prayer is primarily relational, not functional. Reading the scriptures is transformative, not just informative. Liturgies liturgies are daily rhythms of life. They're not just formal worship services. And dependency on God is essential. It's not optional. So why? Why are we being shaped into the image of Christ for the sake of others? Why? Well, maybe one day, maybe, we'll look a bit more like Jesus. We'll sound maybe a a bit more like Jesus. We'll respond and we'll worship a bit more like Jesus. We'll read Scripture a bit more like Jesus and we'll love and maybe pray a bit more like Jesus. And hopefully we'll depend on God a bit more like Jesus. And maybe someday someone will hear our voice but it'll sound a bit more like Jesus. And they'll turn and they'll look right past us and see Jesus and the free gift of eternal life that he has for them. And my hope is that they'll run to him and receive that gift and become a new child of God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word and for moving us forward, helping us become more like Christ for the sake of others. I pray, Father, that this week, as we leave this place, that you would give us vast opportunity to live life in front of others like Christ would live life so that they would have a chance to see Jesus and the gift that he extends to them of eternal life. We thank you, Father, and we look forward to being more like Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.